Have you ever noticed that Jesus has a way of making everything about him? Have you ever noticed that Jesus has a way of making everything about himself? Have you noticed that as we've been reading the Gospel of John together? The conversation keeps swirling around Jesus and keeps coming back to Jesus. And he keeps talking about himself as well. Now, some people are always deflecting attention from themselves. You don't even know they're there. Some people are always drawing attention to themselves. Some people can't help it if attention gets drawn to them for whatever reason. Some other people keep making themselves the topic of conversation. Most of the time, we get tired of people like that. People who make everything about themselves. But what if, what if there was someone that everything was actually about? Have you made up your mind yet about who you think Jesus really is? Have you decided yet which side you're on in the big question? The short passage that Keegan read ended with this statement. The people were divided because of Jesus. Because there's really only two options, with him or against him, for him or opposed to him, believe in him or disbelieve, follow him or leave. At the end of the last chapter, chapter 6, some of those who had been following him decided to cut out. The options seemed to be either that Jesus was bonkers or bread. And they decided that Jesus must be off his head. Anybody who thinks they are as important as bread must be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Right? And Jesus insisted that he was the bread of life. That he was the bread of life. See what I mean about Jesus making everything about himself? You see, there's no middle ground. And John chapter 7 tells the story of how more and more people were divided over Jesus at the feast. At the feast. This story takes place around one week. One week in human history. Just before this week, during this week, and at the end of this week, the week called the Jewish Feast of tabernacles. Let's get into it together. John chapter 7, verse 1. Do you have it in front of you? After this, Jesus went around Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now let's stop there for just a second. This is that Jesus has been hanging around in the north. Because the people down south want to kill him. Does that mean that Jesus is scared? Now, there's a lot of fear we're going to read about in chapter 7, but I don't think it's Jesus that shows the most fear here. 
Jesus is apparently being strategic. By the way, do you remember why they want to kill Jesus? He's kind of seen as a public enemy by the Jewish religious authorities. Remember what his crime in Jerusalem was last time? It wasn't because he cleaned out the temple with a whip or knocked over the tables of commerce in the temple. It was because Jesus had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath and then say that he did it because his father was always working on the Sabbath and so does he. Remember that? It's John chapter 5. That's what they are so upset about. That's why they want him dead. And Jesus doesn't want to be dead yet. So he's hanging around in the north. But his half-brothers try to egg him on to go down to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, do you know what that is? Feast of Tabernacles? It's not something we celebrate today. It's also called the Festival of Shelters or the Feast of Booths or Huts. It was one of the three biggest national annual celebrations centered in Jerusalem in the Israelite religious year. Everybody hit town for a gigantic party. The Feast of Tabernacles came at the end of the harvest, so it was kind of like our Thanksgiving, but it was a lot bigger than that. It, it, everybody moved out of their homes for a whole week and lived in tents. Okay, so you close the door in your house and you build a little tent and you live in the tent, okay? And if you were within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you were supposed to come into Jerusalem and set up your tent there. It was like the great Israelite camping extravaganza, okay? The first camp ministry. Everybody gets out their tents and they build one out of branches and leaves and, and stuff like that. And why they do that? They did it to remember what it was like to live in tents for 40 years when their ancestors were rescued from Egypt and brought safely to the promised land. And it was full of rejoicing. This was a gigantic camping party for the whole nation. It was huge, okay? And Jesus' half-brothers are like, hey, Jesus, you like to make everything about yourself. You should make this about yourself. You should go down to town and do some of your miracles. We've heard about these miracles. Let's see it. Let's see some magic. You're not going to get a name for yourself in Pinchy. I mean, Nazareth. <laughs> you need to go to Washington, D.C., you need to go to New York City. You need to go to London. You need to go to Jerusalem. How about it? Notice that verse 5 says that his brothers did not believe. Either they had never seen the miracles themselves, or they didn't believe what the signs were pointing to. Either way, they did not believe. They grew up with this guy. They do not believe, not yet anyway. So they're trying to push him out into the world to take center stage. And Jesus says, not yet. Look at verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed 
in Galilee. Now notice that Jesus has perfect timing. He knows that there will be a time to go to Jerusalem. There will be a time to get in front of everyone. It just wasn't that day. We're going to see this idea of Jesus' perfect timing, of Jesus' hour, he calls it later, not yet coming, and then coming again and again in the Gospel of John. It's not my hour. It's not my hour. Now's my hour. And you know what happens when it is his hour? What's interesting is that soon after they all leave, Jesus goes down to the feast. Look at verse 10. He does go. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Jesus is being strategic. He's not going to make a miraculous splash, though he is going to make a splash. Verse 11. Now at the feast, there's our sermon title. At the feast, the Jews were watching him, watching for him, and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. There's lots of fear in this passage. Jesus is there among them, quietly, secretly. This is not like the triumphal entry. He's not riding on the donkey with the palm branches being laid before him. In my mind, he's got his hood up. He's just walking quietly through the crowds, listening to the conversations. I don't know if he's alone or if he's got a couple disciples also hood up, quiet, everybody just listening to what's going on, to the raucous crowds, to the conversations about him. Listening to the chatter. Everyone's talking about him. And they're divided, right? Is he good? Or is he a deceiver? But nobody is making big speeches in support of him. There's nobody standing on a soapbox saying, we've got to follow Jesus. Because they're afraid of the authorities. The ones who are out for his blood. People are afraid of being canceled. And about halfway through the week, Jesus decides it's now time to speak up. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. I wonder what that was like. It was clearly amazing. And it threw the religious leaders into a tizzy. Verse 15, the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? He never followed another rabbi. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? He doesn't play around, does he? Well, neither do the Jews. They're locked now in a conflict here in the temple courts, and there is no middle ground. There's like, where did you get this teaching? And Jesus is like, from God. Notice how many times he says, not my own, not my own. 
And how many times he says, from him who sent me, him who sent me. My teaching, he says, is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. That's God the Father. If anyone did choose us to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Remember who Jesus is claiming to be? He's claiming to be God's son. The monogenes. The son of God and God the son. He's claiming to be God, but not God on his own. Not God over here. At odds with God over there. But God from God. Very God of very God. Have you decided yet? If that's who he really is. Notice the promise in verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own, whether or not I am who I claim to be. He says, if you want to know if Jesus is the real deal, commit yourself to doing God's will, no matter what it turns out to be. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Start there. If you truly commit yourself to following the evidence wherever it leads, you will see that Jesus is who he said he is. These people were not doing that. Instead of being committed to the truth, they were trying to kill the truth. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Well, they think that he's bonkers. Or worse, verse 20, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus says, oh, how soon we forget. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. What was the miracle? It's the one from chapter 5, right? Healing that man on the Sabbath, verse 22. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so the, whole, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. See what he's saying here? I've got three points of application this morning at the feast, and this is the first one. Look deeper. Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. They were so focused on how bad it looked that he had healed a man on the wrong day that they didn't think about what that actually meant that he'd healed a man on that day. Jesus says, yeah, it was a Sabbath. So what? You'll circumcise a little boy on the Sabbath if, if it falls on the eighth day from when he was born. That's cutting something off of him. I'm giving a man complete healing on the Sabbath. Or as he says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans made for the Sabbath. So maybe, just maybe, I'm Lord of the Sabbath? Look deeper. Commit to the fear of the Lord. Choose to do God's will. Verse 17, choose to do God's will. Look deeper into the claims of Jesus and you'll be astonished by what you find. Now I know that most of us here are committed Christians. We've already made our big decision about this. 
Praise God. I hope that this is just encouragement for you to keep on going in your faith. But others among us this morning may have been drugged here by someone else, a spouse, a parent, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, even a child. Or maybe you're here because you want to be, but you're not yet sure about this big question of Jesus. If that's you, I am so glad you're here. Look deeper. If you have questions, bring them. That's why we're here. And don't just look at us, because we will fail you. But look at Jesus. And it's okay if you're not there yet, but I challenge you to not stop in your search. Look deeper. Look beyond mere appearances. Because the reality is that things are often different from what they at first seem. Now, it's almost funny, this stuff about whether or not they're trying to kill Jesus. Do you feel that? The little tug of war there? Jesus knows they want to kill him. Some of them don't know that they want to kill him. But lots of other people do know that they want to kill him. And they're confused why nobody's killing him. Right? Look at verse 25. At that some point, at some... At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. The crowd's just buzzing, and they're confused. Hmm, we're at the temple, and he's teaching, and nobody's sticking a spear in him. Have they decided that he is the Messiah after all? No, that can't be. These particular folks have gotten the idea that the Messiah is just going to burst on the scene out of nowhere. And they think they know all about Jesus. He's from Pinch, I mean Nazareth. And when Jesus hears that, he gets loud. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, nobody's touching him, cried out, yes, you know me. And you know where I'm from? I'm not here on my own. There he goes again. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I'm from him. And he sent me. And at this they tried to seize him. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Now Jesus is a broken record, isn't he? He's a little sarcastic with them. Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. Not. They don't really know where he's from. He's from the Father. He's the Word of God, right? This is just living out the the prologue of John's gospel. This is John chapter 1 stuff. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, stood in the temple, but his own did not receive him. The word became flesh, and and what? What does John 1.14 say? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the Greek word for made his dwelling among us? 
Do you know? Do you remember this from chapter one? I know it's been since August, since we were in chapter one together. Actually, we, we studied at Christmas time, didn't we? It's the same word we get the word, ready? Tabernacle from. He tabernacled among us. He tented with us. God came to camp with us. No wonder Jesus makes everything about himself. Everything is about him. Even this festival. The Jews realize that he is claiming once again to be God's son, sent by God. So they try to arrest him, but they fail. Verse 30 says, no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. I don't know if that was just miraculous, like he just walked on by every time somebody grabbed, they couldn't get a hold of him, or whether they were like, I just, I'm supposed to arrest him, but I just can't listen to him. They fail. His time had not yet come. It is coming. His time is on the way, but it's not here yet. So he escapes their grasp once more. And some of those people listening come to faith. They look deeper and they see where the signs are pointing. That's verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Answer, no. Or in the words of John 1, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Oh, that made the Pharisees burn with jealousy. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And when they get to him, they're arrested by him. He confronts them with these words. Verse 33. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time. And then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, you and I know what he's talking about. It's obvious to us because we know the rest of the story, but it was mysterious to them. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean when he says, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They're scratching their heads. They think that maybe Jesus is going to go abroad. Maybe he's scared, so he's going to skip the country. They don't realize that he's saying he's going to go to heaven where he came from. They don't understand where he's from, so they don't understand where he's returning to. So they walk away in a daze. And then comes the last day of the feast. At first, he wasn't going to go. The timing wasn't right. And then he went quietly. And then when the time was right, he began to teach and then to argue. And now it's time for him to issue the invitation that Keegan read to us. And it's time for Jesus to get about as loud as he ever gets. By the way, I haven't told you yet about the major symbolic ritual that the Jews did in Jerusalem every day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know this? Every day of the feast... A golden flagon, a a golden pitcher was filled with clear, pure water from the pool of Siloam. And it was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And everybody follows behind as they take this pitcher 
with this cool water in it from the pool of Siloam. This was called Simchat Beit Hashuvava, the joy of drawing water. Listen to one scholar's description of the procession. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, that's a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, was sounded. And the pilgrims watched. The priest processed around the altar with the flagon. And the temple choir sang. And they sang the songs of ascent. Psalms 113. No, it's, the, it's Psalms 113 through 118. Not the Psalms of ascent, but the ones before that. 113 through 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a lulav, which is a willow, piece of willow and myrtle twigs tied together uh, with a palm branch in his right hand, and his left hand raised up a, a piece of citrus fruit, a sign of the ingathered harvest, because it's Thanksgiving, right? All right? And every one of them is going like this, All right? Everybody in town, as they bring the water up to the altar, and the water then is poured out on the altar at the time of the morning sacrifice. These ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. You know, when you're living in a tent in the desert, you don't care about hardly anything more than you care about water, right? Water. And then on the last day, I think the priest actually went around the altar seven times, like they marched around Jericho. And, they, and the whole crowd got louder and louder every time as they poured out the water. And the cheering must have been deafening. Guess what Jesus is going to do now? He's going to make it about himself. Look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Point number two of three, come to Jesus. He's inviting you, he's inviting me to come to him. He's shouting out his invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's just like what he said to the woman at the well, right? But now he's not in Samaria. He's in Jerusalem. He's on CNN. He's on Fox News. He's, at, he's on the BBC. He's on Al Jazeera. And he's saying it loudly so that everyone in the world can hear. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see how he's making the feast all about himself? It's because it is all about him. Every eye in the temple has turned to him at that moment. Everything stops. In my mind, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the moment when everybody was going ballistic about the water that he says, if anyone is thirsty, and everybody turns and looks at him. Every eye is on him. He's not scared. And he doesn't say, come to God and drink. He says, come to me and drink. 
And verse 38 makes it clear that this drinking of Jesus as water is another metaphor for true faith. Just, Just like eating the flesh and drinking the blood in the last chapter was. It's totally taking in Jesus. It's finding your satisfaction in Christ. It's being fully engaged with Jesus. Around here we call it a life-changing relationship with Jesus. True faith treats Jesus like he's the water we need to live. Because he's the water we need to live. He's the only thing that will quench our spiritual thirst forever. If we believe in him, then we get the Holy Spirit to live and flow inside of us. Listen to verses 38 and 39 again. Whoever believes in me, that's the same thing as drinking of him. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit. You know what's amazing? You and I have this water flowing in us right now if we have come to believe in Jesus. Right here in this room, this spirit is flowing like that. In the hearts of every true believer in Christ. Now at this point, the spirit had not yet been poured out. That comes at Pentecost. The third person of God will not come in all of that fullness until the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension. After Jesus' hour, his glorification. But we live on the other side of all that. We have this spirit living in and flowing in us in this exact way that Jesus is promising in verse 38. He has come and is quenching our spiritual thirst and will do so forever and ever and ever for those who believe in Jesus and come to him. Come to Jesus. You have to decide for yourself. That's the third and last point for today, decide for yourself. Look deeper into who Jesus really is. Hear his invitation to believe in and drink him up. And then decide for yourself. I can't make that decision for you. Nobody can. Your folks can't make that decision for you. Your kids can't. Your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, they can't make that decision for you. You've got to do it yourself. These folks listening to Jesus were divided. Some were impressed, others were not. Look at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. I believe he's both. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Look deeper. It turns out if you look into it that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was from David's royal family, but he was also from Galilee. It's both and all of that and so much more. But you have to decide for yourself. The people were decided, be, divided because of Jesus. Verse 44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. We, we didn't know what to do. 
He had more power in his words than you have in yours. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Hmm. Maybe some of the Pharisees have believed. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, remember Nick at night, John chapter 3, and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Have you made up your mind yet about who you think Jesus really is? You have to decide for yourself what you will make of Jesus. Nicodemus is beginning to speak up. He's been scared up to this point, like a lot of other people in this chapter. He had come to Jesus secretly at night. He started out in the dark, but it looks like he might be coming into the light. What about you? Yes, Jesus has a way of making everything about him. But I believe that's because everything is about him. 